It's been really encouraging over the past couple weeks to have people lament the fact that we have left the book of Leviticus in order to orient ourselves towards the incarnation. I've really enjoyed going through Leviticus, and it's been fun to see from that first Sunday when we said, we're going to go through Leviticus, and everybody kind of groaned, oh, to, to now, like, why have we stopped going through Leviticus? Like, well, it's Christmas, and so we did, I guess. Had I known you were going to be so passionate, we would have continued to just work on through. Uh, but we did last week begin working through uh, kind of a mini-series on um, the king of Christmas. And so we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we thought about the promise of a king. And we talked about the promised king and, and, and pointed to uh, the fact that this king is Jesus. This week, we're turning our attention to Psalm chapter 2. And what we will see is that the king conquers. And so we have the promised king and the conquering king. And then next week, we'll look at uh, the king who is laid in a manger. I'll come up with a, a more creative title than that. But, but at this point, uh, promised king, conquering king. And so we are in Psalm chapter 2. I'm just going to read it to us, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Therefore, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. As we see kind of the logic of the psalm, we see that God laughs at man's vain attempt to usurp his rule because his rule is secure. His king has been installed and established. Therefore, in light of this truth, the world and its leaders, all peoples from all nations, ought to pay homage to God's King, God's Son. And so our, our main idea this morning is kind of a really, really summarized version of that, that Jesus is the King. Jesus is God's King. Therefore, we should pay homage to the Son. We should take refuge in Jesus. We should make God's King our King. We're going to examine the rule of this king by looking at four truths in this psalm. We'll see that even though God's rule is good, humanity rejects it. That despite man's rebellion, God's rule is secure. We'll see that God's rule is communicated through God's king. 
and that God's king must be worshipped. Let's pray and we'll begin. We confess, Sovereign Father, that in an age where a great deal of sentimentalism prevails, we have become unaccustomed and somewhat uncomfortable to be reminded that the wrath of King Jesus is quickly kindled and can flare up in a moment. We have repeated so often, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that we have grown slightly uneasy with the notion that the one enthroned in heaven laughs and holds his opponents in derision. And yet, it is written. Lord, we hunger to know you, not as society dictates you must be, but as you truly are. We want to know you as you have disclosed yourself to us in your most holy word. And so we ask now that you would give us ears to hear, that you would make me faithful in my proclamation of your word. We ask that you would be glorified, that Christ would be honored. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. A little background work is necessary to set this psalm in its proper frame because it does not exist in a vacuum. In fact, this psalm is intimately tied to our passage last week in 2 Samuel 7 with that promise of a king. It's going to pick up on that very specific language from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, and verses 12 through 14 specifically. Let me read it to you. When your time comes, he's speaking to David, and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Remember, David wanted to build the temple. And God said, no, David, that's not for you to do. You don't make my name great. I make your name great. And he's telling him someone else is going to do that. Turns out to be Solomon. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And so uh, you remember that that promise is being made to David that his progeny will always sit the throne. That someone from David's line is going to be king forever over Israel. We learn from the language, you are my son, today I have become your father. That this is enthronement language. That this would have been spoken when a king took his place on the throne during his coronation. And we have that same kind of language in our text today, uh, right there in verse 7. You are my son, today I have become your father. There's this declaration that this person is becoming king. We said that, that that language speaks not to biology, but to function and relationship. And this would have been understood kind of in metaphorical terms in the ancient world. Because in that time, you did what your daddy did, right? So if your daddy was a farmer, you became a farmer. If your father was a cobbler, you became a cobbler. And so like father, like son. And so the king was to rule. He was to communicate God's rule to God's people. He was to rule like God, like father, like son. And so you are my son today. I've become your father. You are now my king. I'm going to refer to you as my son. So we see that this language is going to be picked up. This is a coronation psalm. It takes place in the realm of the enthronement of a king. 
The second part of that promise, which is the big part, that somebody's going to sit the throne of David forever, if we're being fair, we recognize that this has to be fulfilled in one of two ways. It has to be fulfilled that uh, David has a descendant and that person rules and reigns on the throne and then they die and then another descendant of David raises up and rules and reigns on the throne and then they die and then another descendant of David raises up and rules and reigns on the throne and dies, so on and so forth, in perpetuity forever and ever and ever. The second way that the promise that's made to David could be fulfilled is if there is a descendant of David who lives and rules and reigns on the throne forever. And in light of the fact that after Solomon, the kingdom goes headlong into civil war and eventually on down into the Babylonian exile, the authors of Scripture begin to understand this promise in the second way. They begin to understand that this king, this son of David, who's going to sit the throne forever, is most likely going to live forever. We see that in Psalm 2. That this text, even though it's written for the coronation of kings, ultimately becomes much broader. That when a king would be enthroned in Israel and this would be read, that that king would never quite fill out those shoes. They were waiting for another. That's the uh, second observation. Is that this psalm is ultimately written about Jesus. And it's written about Jesus by David. Now, if you look up in the superscription, it doesn't say a psalm of David as you might have become accustomed to. But we learn this from Acts chapter 4, where we read this. And the context is uh, the disciples have started witnessing to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and calling people to repent of their sin and to trust in him. And they get this, this first kind of wave of persecution. And so this is their response in Acts 4.23. After they were released... They went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you were the one who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. You said, and here they quote, you said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, and this is where they're going to quote our psalm, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant your servants may speak your word with all boldness. And so they employ this psalm as a way to comfort themselves. They remind themselves that God is in control, that Jesus is their long-awaited son. He's the Davidic king who rules and reigns. And so even though they might be facing persecution, even though they might be killed, they ultimately will not be overwhelmed because the God who has risen from the dead and rules on the throne will raise them also. That's why they pray not for an escape from their circumstances, but for boldness to continue obeying the Lord Jesus. They understand that this promise has been fulfilled and they have their eyes on eternity. And that informs how they interact with their circumstances. And so we see that this psalm is written by David and it's about Jesus. Paul also in Acts 13 employs this psalm. Verse 27 Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. 
Though they found no grounds for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And Jesus appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, and here's that language from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and our psalm today in verse 7, you are my son, today I have become your father. And so we can see that this psalm is ultimately pointing us to Jesus. It finds its fullness of fulfillment in King Jesus. And though it is written about kings in antiquity, those who would ascend to the throne of David, they all fall short. Jesus is the true king, the true heir to the forever throne of David. And so with all that information kind of in our pockets, let's begin walking through the psalm together. Look with me at verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. That's his king or Messiah. Saying, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The question that opens this psalm is not an actual inquiry but an expression of astonishment at the incredulity of those who would assemble themselves against the Lord. You see, to oppose God's king is to oppose God himself. And to oppose the creator of the universe is not a winning prospect. This this is ridiculous. This is foolish. Why do the nations rage? Why are they raising their voices and their fists at the God who has made them? Why are they opposing God's king? It's, It's ridiculous. And yet, they do. They conspire together against the Lord. They say, let us be rid of all of his antiquated rules and laws. All this morality of God is holding us back. After all, there's no objective morality. Good and evil are social constructs. And they keep us from living free, you know, following our hearts, doing what we want to do. God's rules keep us from being true to ourselves. They're holding us down. Let us throw them off. Let us throw off God's rule, His authority is abusive, cruel, and oppressive. That is the reason for the devilish whining of the raging nations. This belief that God's authority, and any authority for that matter, is not good. And yet we know that God's authority is good. But why? Why do we, along with raging nations, why do we constantly oppose authority? I mean, we we hate it. 
And the reason for the hatred of authority is our love for autonomy, our love for ourselves. The only authority most of us respect is us. We want to do what we want to do, and we don't want to be told what to do. You don't have to be a parent too long before you discover this truth. You have that wonderful child of yours, angelic, lovely, and one day you ask them to do just a very simple task, clean your room, something, and all of a sudden it happens, no. That's astonishing. And you cry out to that child, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Like, this is so silly. You're, you're a child. Why would you rebel against me? This is the height of folly. And yet they rebel. It, it, it's inherent to us in our sin nature. The nature that we inherited from our first parents. When they believed the lie that God's rule wasn't good for them. That by setting up that one tree in the garden and saying, don't eat from this tree or you will die that God was somehow holding them back from becoming their truest and best selves. They believed the lie that God was holding out on them. Just a a quick aside. God is not holding out on you. God has never held out on any of his people. He has always worked for his glory and for your good. He's not held back any part of himself from you. In fact, Jesus Christ gave his life so that you might be saved from your sins. God is more committed to your good than you are. Jesus did not hold back one drop of sweat. did not hold back one tear. He did not hold back one sprinkle of his blood as he poured out his life for guilty sinners who deserved death, who deserve hell. This is not a God who is out to get you. This is a God who loves you. He's calling you to come home, to submit yourself to his good authority so that you might truly prosper, so that you might truly live. All your rebellion, it'll just end in brokenness and despair. Adam and Eve bought this lie that God was holding out on them. They took that small taste of the fruit that was forbidden. And it didn't set them free. It condemned them to slavery. fractured everything and ushered death and curse into the world. I don't know why it is. God's rule is good. His authority is good. And yet we we choose to reject it. I think oftentimes as evangelicals, we look at like Adam and Eve's story and we go, yeah, they're so stupid, (laughs) dumb. And then we turn around and there are believe it or not, authorities that God has set up in our own lives and we repeat their folly. We say to our parents, no. 
we reject authority all the time. I wonder, are you rejecting God's authority in your life by refusing to submit to the authorities that he has set up in your life? So children, which is all of us actually when you think about it, are you honoring your parents and parents who have younger children? Are you making sure that you are not provoking them to anger? That you are bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? The authority that God sets up is good and it's for blessing. And we want to make sure that we're not abusing it or twisting it. Wives, are you in happy submission to your husbands? Husbands, are you blessing your wives with the authority God has given you? Loving them as Christ has loved the church sacrificially? You're stewarding that authority so that they might be blessed, so that they might flourish rather than wither? Christian, are you submitting to a local church? Church, are you submitting to your leaders? Well, there are all kinds of authorities that God has set up for our good, for our blessing, for our flourishing. Are we obeying those authorities? Or are we raging against them as the nations rage against God's king? Even though God's authority is good, his rule is good, men reject it. And together say, let's tear off the chains of God and his king. Let's throw the ropes off of us. And then all of a sudden in the psalm, the scene shifts in verse 4. It's kind of like we have this picture of what's going on on earth, and then the camera cuts away and then takes us to the, the, what's going on in heaven. And let's look at what, what happens, how God responds to this situation. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. And he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This anthropomorphic picture of heaven is quite unexpected. God responds to the great rebellion of man by filling heaven's hallways with a deep belly laugh. A derisive one. It's like, <laughs> have you lost your mind? <laughs> then his anger is quickly kindled at their arrogance. He declares, I have put my king on my holy mountain. He has been established. Your machinations cannot bring about the dethronement of my king. Your conspiring cannot overwhelm my rule. It's the height of folly. It has zero chance of success because my rule and my reign are are secure. The reign of my king is unassailable. But there's no chance of success of this rebellion. UVA had a better chance of upsetting Clemson a couple weeks ago, okay? 
This has zero chance of success. That was a little too soon for some of you UVA fans. I can feel it. This has zero chance of success. God's rule is secure. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then God's king speaks. Verse 7. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. And so there's that enthronement language again. Say, you have been raised up as my son. You are the son of David. You're going to sit the throne. Today, you are, I am now your father. And the idea is that this king is being enthroned. They're being coronated. And at the point of their coronation, they get all that comes with being a king. Because of this relationship between God and the king, the king is as God's son. He is to represent God to the people and rule over them kindly and justly. And he also represents the people before God. He's able to communicate God's rule to the people. And therefore, he can ask because he is the father's son and God will grant his requests. Like he says, ask of me and I will make the nations your possession. Your inheritance will be the ends of the earth. You will break them with an iron scepter and you will shatter them like pottery. God says to this king, which turns out to be Jesus, you will rule the four corners of the earth and all who oppose your rule, you'll smash them like teacups and saucers, like someone's fine china being slammed against the ground. You will break them and rule over them. No sin, no rebellion goes unpunished. No one gets away with continued rebellion against God's king. See, what's happened here is that we've skipped over Christ's first advent at Christmas and we've gone right into his second advent, his return. And in it, we see that no one is going to get away with sin. No one is going to get away with continuing to reject the rule of God's king. We see that that first advent, Jesus came to bear God's judgment against sin. He came to live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died, and rise from the dead. So that anybody who repents of their sin and puts their faith in Christ can enjoy knowing God as Father. But when he comes the second time, he will not be coming to bear judgment, but to bring God's judgment against sin. So that those who have not taken refuge in Jesus Christ those who have not submitted to him as king will endure his wrath themselves. 
He will bring the right and good, holy justice of God to those who continue in evil. That's what he's doing when he returns. He's ending all evil. And if we have not taken shelter beneath his blood that was poured out for us, but we will find that we are evil and that we too will be utterly destroyed. No one gets away. This, this language along with the New Testament language tells us that this is not a one, it's not a one-time deal. The destruction and subjugation of Christ's enemies goes on into eternity. That's what we often refer to as hell. And sometimes uh, we'll refer to hell as a, a separation from God. And that's good and well. But we, we want to think about these things uh, really precisely this morning. Hell is not bad because it is a separation from God. No, hell is bad, not, not because of the weapons that are apparently implemented for torture, or, or not because of the temperature. Right? Scripture describes it in various ways. It's a, a place of outer darkness, and it's a lake of fire. Right? These images are meant to point us to how awful it is. But, but hell is not awful because of these things. It is terrible because God is there. God is there and he is not being gracious. He is doing nothing but pouring out his holy wrath on those who would usurp his rule. Hell is awful for the same reason that heaven is wonderful. God's there. God's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He upholds the universe. In heaven, we don't get any of this wrath. It's just his, his love and his mercy and his grace. But those who persist in rebellion, it's wrath all the way down for all of eternity. And I think some of us squirm even now as I'm preaching going, Pastor, I invited my friends this week and you know, I told them, you know, we're not, you know, we're Christians, but, but we're, we're not one of those hell, fire, and brimstone churches. We're not like that. And I guess we speak that way because we are embarrassed about how God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And here, here's the truth. If there is no hell, fire, and brimstone, if there is no judgment for sin, then the gospel doesn't make any sense. Because if, if there is no judgment coming, then what on earth does anybody need to be saved from? When Jesus dies in our place for our sin, he's absorbing the wrath of God in our place so that we can know God as Father instead of as Judge. If we don't understand that, or if, if there is no judgment, then this, this isn't, doesn't make any sense. It's not good news. We're being, we're being saved from the wrath of God by the Son of God who has become a man so that he might die in our place for our sins and be raised up from the dead 
to rule as our king. He's going to one day end all of his enemies. He's going to conquer evil. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. And still, we we don't like to, to think of God in these terms. Smashing the nations. Ruling over them with an iron scepter. I think some of us go, man, it's like weird kind of, uh, we go, oh, well, that's, you know, that's kind of God in the Old Testament. And, and in the New Testament, he, you know, he, he starts to figure it out a little bit. He calms down. He's kindler. He's more kind and gentle. And we come at Christmas and, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And we ignore all of these predictions and warnings about eternal judgment. The the Bible's teaching on God's long-term judgment, his eternal judgment, doesn't seem to bother us. And I go, why? And here's my answer. I think we fear God's temporary judgments more than his eternal ones. So if we have a non-Christian friend and their child gets sick or they lose their home or a job, we get really, really concerned with them. And I'm not, I don't want to say that those things are judgments. Those are just circumstances I'm pointing out right now. We get really, really concerned. This temporary circumstance and, and we're super in their lives. But on the regular, we're not worried about where they will spend eternity. We're not worried about the danger that they could pull out in traffic and get T-boned and die and find themselves in an eternity under God's wrath. Why not? Now we look at, in the Old Testament, we see those temporary judgments. You know, Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark and God kills him. Nadab and Abihu try to worship God the way they think he should be worshipped, even though he tells them, worship me the way I tell you, and they die. He kills them. And what we need to realize is that those little pictures of judgment throughout Scripture, and there are big pictures too, Noah and the ark, sometimes we make that like a kid's story. Oh, look, all the animals on the boat. It's wonderful, and it's raining, and then the sun's out. This is a story of judgment. God kills every human being except for Noah and his family. The big picture of judgment. And all of these pictures of judgment throughout the Bible are pointing us to God's eternal judgment, which is far, far worse. Friends, we need to concern ourselves with the judgment that is to come. We want to make sure that we are relating to God as Father, that we are in submission to the King. Some of us here think we are in submission to the king and we are not. We live as kind of cultural Christians. We do the Christian thing. We go to church every once in a while and if somebody asks us if we believe in Jesus, we say yes, but then we go and we live however the hell we want. That, you're not a Christian, friend. You've picked up some, some device of Satan that has made you content to sit in your sin. Do not be fooled. You will either be in submission to the king 
where you will find yourself under the king's wrath. This psalm is meant to move us to verses 10 through 12. It tells us the the nations are rebelling against God. God's rule cannot be threatened or overthrown. God has raised up his king. His king will have victory. His king will rule. Therefore, so now, verse 10, kings, peoples, those in rebellion, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve or worship the Lord with fear, reverential awe. And rejoice with trembling. What an odd phrase. Rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun. I, I like the older translations. It says kiss the sun. This is the literal translation. And it, it means pay homage to him. You're, you're pledging your allegiance. This is, you're saying this is my king. I'm going to follow his lead. Kiss the sun. Alternatively, if you do not, he will be angry. And you will perish in your rebellion, literally, in the way. It's been a few weeks now, but if you remember, in the way, and this is in Psalms, it follows on Psalm 1, and you look at Psalm chapter 1, there are two ways to live. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And if you persist in wickedness and in rebellion against God, say, you're going to end up in the way of the wicked. Verse 6 of chapter 1, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. His anger may ignite at any moment. His justice is not slow. It will come. And all who take refuge in him are happy. Blessed are all who take refuge in this king. The psalm is meant meant to warn us. It should scare you. The prospect of being destroyed by God. It's meant to scare those who would hear it into pledging their fidelity to God's king. That's the goal, to make God's king your king. Now, Christian, this psalm is really, really comforting for you because it means that no matter what happens, the Lord is on the throne and he's for you. And so suffering and death and sin, they will be endured for a night. And then joy will come in the everlasting morning. You might die, but Christ will raise you up. You may suffer, but Christ will bind up your wounds. But when He returns, He's going to reverse all the effects of sin and death, all the effects of the curse. Man, it's awesome, like, I don't know how it's going to work when you stub your toe in heaven. But it's like not going to hurt. You don't have to worry about aging. Your sight going bad. No, no. He's making all things new. We can put our eyes on the eternal and endure faithfully the temporal. Be comforted, church. Non-Christian, put your faith in this king. Be warned. Make God's king your king. 
Because He will bring judgment. And it will last forever. This Christmas, don't just think of Jesus as the baby lying in the manger. Remember, He's the King who conquered death for all who will trust in Him by being crucified upon the cross. He's the King who sits the throne of David because He's been raised from the dead. Where's the crown of righteousness? And He is returning put all nations, all corners of the earth under his good and mighty rule. This Christmas non-Christian, kiss the sun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your good authority. We thank you that even though we were dead in our sin, you decided to save us. Not because we were good or better, but because you love us and you are kind and good. We thank you that even though we deserve your wrath, that when we repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus, we receive your blessing, the blessing that only he deserves. And so this morning we offer ourselves to our real and risen King, Jesus. Praise you that he is alive, victorious over sin and death and evil. We praise you that one day, someday soon, he will return and make all things new. It's in his name that we pray. It's in him that we take refuge. Amen.